Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. Good morning, all you beautiful souls. Thank you for joining me again for another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Today, I am doing my favorite kind of show live and in person instead of on the video using the Google. And uh, today, I have some people that I've known for actually years. If we go far enough back, we have Karen Storwick and Robert Curtin. Now, these folks are historians film producers and um, they know more than about our community than most of us know about our community which is interesting uh, folks thanks so much for making the time to be be here with me today thanks mark great to be here yeah glad to be here it's great to have you you're gonna have to be a bit close to your microphone there that. robert yeah we're good you're the video guy i'm the i'm the audio guy <laughs> um when we first met, if I remember this right, uh, it was at the Museum of the Regiments, and you were taking stories and, and uh, had the video and, and, and the screen in the back, and you were collecting, uh, and that day, I keep running into my old buddy Bruce Nickel, but um, he was there, I was there, and we were telling stories of um, our time in the war in Croatia. Now, what, like, where did those go? Because you guys did a pile of them well actually i mean they go into the archives at the museum of the regiments and uh, also the princess patricia archives and um, we always keep a backup so if the building burns down or something of that sort we have the material it will never be lost but it's in a vault so, like, does anybody have access to actually see these things? Yeah, so the Patricias have, uh, we've, we've got a long working relationship with the Patricias in particular. And uh, one of the things that we've done for, um, the, over the last 10 years pretty consistently is do interview um, projects with, with the Patricias. And so I think we have in total about 125 Patricias on, on video of all variety of eras and uh, w there's there's a number of things that can happen to those videos so one of the things that we have done is use them in the museum gallery in the PPCLI museum and we have a, a little uh, a few little things that uh, we call speakers corner so that the viewers can go up and they'll be you know, maybe 10 or 15 little icons of of interviews that they can go and listen to. So that can be a, a museum visitor experience. So that's one of the ways that those videos are used. So the, the only speaker's corner that I saw in the Museum of the Regiments in the PPCLI part of it, uh, there was a barrack box there. It was kind of cool. And, um, but there was like five Afghanistan stories that you could choose from. And that's all that I saw on there. 
Yeah, and there's a Korean War one around the corner as well. Okay. And um, for each one of these, they require a grant from the province. And so, it w- you know, when you get um, rotations of RMs and projects come and projects go. But, uh, we, yeah, we made it to two speakers' corners and we had ambitions for a third. And, in fact, that would have been the Bosnia one. Okay. Uh, but, but that's not to say that that, uh, that can't happen in the future because we've got all of that material in the can waiting for a project. And, and um, as you know, we have been working with DHH on the Mission Afghanistan project for, well, since 2016. And we've got about 250 interviews of Afghanistan personnel across the country. And um, because that project has been so successful, there is a, a real keen interest on moving backwards in time and doing something similar with DHH with Bosnia, Croatia. And, sure. and in that situation, then we would have more of a mandate to produce those interviews. Is there any uh, potential for it to become access so that the public can access it, though? So like um, on, a, on a website or a YouTube channel or something like that, so others can hear these stories? Um, well, one of the things that we do, and for example, when you signed your release, um, we consider that to be your intellectual property. How that film is used um, is tightly controlled. You approve the usage. And so if we make it public available, publicly available, available on the web, that means generally anybody can access it, download it, and, partic- uh, and use it in a manner that is possibly not appropriate or one in which you would not approve. So uh, the material is there uh, in archives so that historians, possibly even 50 years from now, who want to understand the Balkans, where you served, Afghanistan, Korea, and so on, can actually access first-person information on what occurred and know what your experience was. So we think that that's really important from a historical perspective. Also, for example, Karen and I produced a a film called uh, Remembering Medak. And so we were very fortunate. Uh, We went to, what was it, the 25th anniversary? Do you recall, Karen? Um, You'd have to do the math. I don't think we're (laughs) at 25 yet. All right, all right. Well, uh, Medak was 93. Yeah, it was 93, so uh, the 30th is next year. Okay, all right. Maybe so it was the 25th. I thought it was the 25th. But yeah. in any case, uh, we then uh, shot a great deal of material and created um, this production called Remembering Medak. We made that available to um, public affairs who were going to share it um, as part of a, a program that they were developing. Um, in the end, uh, because we mentioned some of the holocaust-type experiences that our our personnel viewed and were exposed to, um, they determined that they did not want to share that kind of material with people who were now allies. Mm. So um, you get into that political aspect. But we shared it with the Patricias, we shared it with uh, people on the web, uh, but it was a finished production. And again, each person, Jim Calvin and so on that we interviewed, had final say on how that material was used. 
it just seems that uh, these are stories that need to be told and for the public consumption. Because as you know, um, most Canadians still don't know about Medec Pocket. I've talked about it on the show several times. I had Rudy Bajima on the show uh, talking about Medec Pocket, which is good. And Curtis Sanheim was at MEDAC, um, although he was further back. There was only about 80 troops uh, right. that were actually in the scrapping for for the multi-day fight. And then everybody else was back uh, in, uh, in backup positions. But, I mean, what a bloody story. And it's one that I still, even though I was in the same place a year later, I don't know the story as well as I should. But most Canadians don't know it at all. The sad part is that many of those guys who came back would try to tell their story, even in barracks, and were set, and were told, that's BS. Yeah, they didn't believe them. They didn't believe them. And they expected to come back to Canada and be greeted as heroes. It never happened. Yeah. And so um, it's, a, it's a sad story. Um, we agree 100% that Canadians need to know, and that's why we do what we do. Um, Canadians need to understand what our personnel have done, what they've experienced, and we need to have to develop that pride. If Canadians knew all the things that Canadian soldiers have done over the years, we would have a different perception of Canada's milita- military. Well, you're not wrong. Um, I, near and dear to me, and somehow, somewhere. I'm gonna. I want to get a movie uh, done. I had Remy Adeleke on the show. Remy is uh, one of the um, performers or one of the actors in one of the Transformers movies. Uh, he's doing um, a movie on um, on human trafficking right now, and uh, I pitched him a movie idea for for Tommy Prince. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get uh, one of Tommy's daughters on the show. She's agreed to do it, but uh, it's, it's tough to get that one over the finish line. So I'll, I'll keep pushing. But in my head, if we can get a proper, like full production, full budget movie made of uh, re- a redo of The Devil's Brigade, but centered around Tommy Prince, what that would do for First Nations uh, across North America. You know um, the the level of pride that uh, would come because they don't know his name either, and they should. No, it's mm-hmm. true. Uh, Karen and I uh, recently completed the seventy fourth anniversary of the first special service force, and uh, all the material. Karen was involved very very closely uh, with the committee to create uh, the first special service force museum. In the universe, in the military museums, um, I encourage anybody who can to come and see that exhibit. I think it is um, remarkable. Uh, we did have uh, was it his daughters? Yeah, or? Tommy Prince's daughters were there, and so when Robert says the seventy fourth, it was the seventy fourth anniversary of the First Special Service Force Association, not to be confused <laughs> yeah. with with the the war itself. Um, and, uh, it, I mean, the first special service force association is an incredible organization. Most veterans organizations from the second world war have disbanded because, um, uh, our veterans have sadly 
uh, gone and there's just no one to pass the torch to. But there's two associations that I've been involved with that are incredibly vital still. And one of them is for Special Service Force Association. And they've managed to pass their uh, their legacy on to the next generation. And, and now it looks like it's going to go on to the next generation as well. The only other organization I've ever come across that has been able to successfully bring their the next generations into it and sustain the, the association is the uh, Hong Kong PO. W Veterans Association. Uh, so two pretty powerful um, aspects of Second World War history. But uh, I agree, if you were to make a movie about Tommy Prince, that would that would go a long way. And, you know, one of the one of the things so you know, Robert and I have I, done so many interviews and we basically um, uh, are look for mandates to make these films. And in because the uh, you know, inevitable fact of making a film is you need to have funds. You need to have money to do it. And that's the biggest stumbling block that we run across here in Canada. And I, you know, I don't know if it's easier to make movies in the United States. Americans seem to make movies, um, you, you know, very liberally. We are in, in Canada as independent filmmakers, it's really difficult to get the funding to tell the stories that we want to tell. And so um, we find that we're often working with museums because museums will give us that mandate. Um, sometimes we'll get that mandate from from, from a regiment. Um, and, you know, one of the films that we're trying to make is our Fallen Heroes, their journey home film. And, and that's just a labor of love for Robert and I. And we've been trying to do this film since 2012 about the war in Afghanistan and the impact on Canadians. And uh, so we're now into our 10th year. Um, Robert tells me that Saving Private Ryan took 10 years. So we're still, we're still in good shape. Um, but, but, uh, but our biggest challenge in, and this is so with every single movie project that we try to make, our biggest challenge is trying to accumulate funding. And there just is not that avenue in Canada. And the other side of it is that the area that we're trying to explore is um, Canada's military history. And I don't care what war it is. If Canada was involved, Canada may have played a major role um, but the film bankers, whether they're in the U.S. or they're in the U.K., Canada's written out of the script. Yeah, that's, so, that's why I don't think there's ever been another follow-up movie to The Devil's Brigade, and also why The Devil's Brigade movie, one, although it was entertaining, it was done poorly as from a historical perspective. It was done very poorly. But uh, because the the heroes of the show were all Canadian, you know, um, there's not a lot of people that know about that movie. No. Not at all. It's it's really unfortunate um, that the Devil's Brigade, I can tell you a remarkable story. I was, oh, maybe 16 years old, just turning 16, and I was at a little family resort. And um, So I, this was in the 90s then? Way back when, okay? We're talking... Uh, I wasn't born yet. Uh, yeah, mm. that's right. She wasn't born yet. Met this young German girl from uh, from Hamburg who had just come uh, to Canada, and she was staying with family. And at one point, I asked her to go to a small town and watch a movie with me. And then I found out, just before we were about to head out to the movie, that the movie in that town was The Devil's Brigade. And I said to her, "Um, it's all right if if you don't want, this is a war movie, and, you know, 
if you don't want to go, I completely understand. And she said, that's okay. In Germany, we win the movies. <laughs> so anyway, back to the Devil's Brigade. It wasn't really, uh, we've spoken to many veterans who were members of the first special service force. It was not a good representation of the force or the forcemen. Yeah, not by a long shot. And even the, my favorite scene, of course, is the PPCLI guy in the mess hall uh, mopping the floor with <laughs> <laughs> as his unarmed combat uh, demonstration. But apparently, even that uh, is not exactly true. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a Patricia that was the unarmed combat instructor. That's right. That's right. He was actually a Brit. I was. Huh. Damn it! <laughs> my, it was the best part. He's got he's got my regiment's uh, uh, jacket on, and well, in my mind, he was still a Patricia. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know our good friend and colleague Roger Chabot working away in Eastern. He says hello. Eastern by the Canada. way, he's in the comments. Oh, nice! Right. Hi, Roger. Roger has done a, a tremendous job um, making a film series about the about the first special service force. And Roger, tell me again what the name of it is. I always want to call it Band of Brothers and I and it's not Band of Brothers. So if Roger tells us in the comment the name of his series, I can help him promote it. But but he's done a fabulous job and and will soon be um releasing a movie on uh the D Day Dodgers. So you know we do have filmmakers in Canada that are working away independently, but we're almost literally self-funded. Uh, it's, uh, and, and this is a real impediment to being able to tell our stories. Bravery in arms, Bravery Roger in arms. Says. Thank you, Roger. Bravery in arms. Yes. And in fact, at the military museums, with our new exhibit that opened in August, um, the movie Bravery in Arms can be seen. So we have a big uh, feature TV there, a little mini theater, and um, and visitors can go and, and see that film. So to get something made, like the one I want to get made, you know, a redo, a redo of The Devil's Brigade, like what kind of, um, even if you're to do it quick and dirty, you're still talking probably what's $50 million at least. We've never made a $15 million movie, so I think no, we could I do think, it for less. I think he said five zero. Five zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've never made a $50 million movie either. Years, uh, years ago, um, uh, my production manager had just completed doing what was the biggest budget movie in Canadian history, uh, a movie called Millennium, and that was $100 million. So, uh, I mean... We're looking at doing a TV series, actually a 10-part documentary series. That's budgeted at uh, $1.5 million per episode. Um, but that's going to be a stretch. To and, actually and what's the series going to be about? It's, uh, again, it's a uh, the next generation of the uh, series that we have done on Mission Afghanistan. And it will hopefully help Canadians, again, understand um our our canadian experience in afghanistan uh as we have explained to people it's kind of a cross between a ken burns documentary and band of brothers so we want to do the recreations um we want to get people excited enough to want to learn more and so this is a way of doing it you know we don't want to do straight-ahead documentaries. Um, I think the younger audience in particular, who I 
think we need to connect with. Um, you know, they're watching Marvel movies. They're watching, you know, material today. We have to have a level of entertainment and sizzle that they've come to appreciate. And if we can do that, we can get them hooked. And that's what we want. We want to get them hooked on our history. I think that one of the avenues, other than getting a a couple of um, well-funded producers, you know, executive producers to to, to put up the money, but uh, the the idea with keeping Tommy Prince as that center point, and there's got to be Canadian historical grants, um, First Nations grants, you know, that sort of thing. Because the impact that it would have, I was just I spent two days on a reserve uh, on a reserve last uh, week. Uh, I was burying a friend of mine that I used to look after, and um, nobody had a clue who Tommy Prince was on on uh, the Goodfish Lake Reserve. The damage that trauma and intergenerational trauma does it disconnects you from who you were, and from your history. And in my short couple days on that res, I could see how important it would be if there was a sense of history and pride that was strong. And it's always rallied around one name. And I know Tommy isn't the only one by any stretch of the imagination. There's all kinds of uh, heroes out there. He's just the one that I know about a little bit. But um, pick one, pick one, and circle the the wagons around one name. And what that would do for the culture, for the for the pride, for people to just go, oh, okay, you know, uh, what a proud, proud recent history that we have. And because um, Tommy Prince was the equivalent of a mythical superhero. You know, uh, some of the stories about him, and I hope the movie has the bullshit stories included, as well as the real stories all, all mixed together. But, um, I mean, it, 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 it's superhuman level stories about the guy. So the bridge that that would uh, make between, because trauma is trauma is trauma. So a traumatized veteran community that can connect with a traumatized First Nations community. To me, that's a bridge. Trauma is the bridge to that and would raise the pride and and the, um, like, I think those are the two communities that should be bridged together, mm-hmm. you know, and that they should have a similar amount of respect as the veteran community does for what they have endured and um, to be encouraged to resolve and move past that trauma. Because that's the bottom line. If uh, you cannot heal, if you don't find a way to res- to acknowledge and resolve that trauma, you can't do it. But a movie like this would just be, do so much. You're absolutely right, and and it's interesting, you know, because even the first special service force, uh, the name that they were given by many who wrote the history was the Forceman. But in fact, they had a very large Aboriginal contingent within the First Special Service Force, and they called themselves the Braves. 
Interesting. Yeah. And of yeah. course, the arrowhead. Yes. You know, yeah, the arrowhead is part directly of the harkens logo. back to that um, to that legacy. And you know, it connects with our special forces today. And well, sure, it's the birth of the Green Berets and really all the special service that's forces. Correct. Mm-hmm. That's correct. But the guys um, in uh, in our special forces initially, JTF two, they actually began to put the red arrow on their shoulder, and that's how it evolved. Mm, they and perpetuate that history. That's right. Officially. And so CANSOFCOM uh, today, that is the symbol that they wear on their uniform and their dress uniform, not just, you know. I wonder if Balboa Productions would pick up on it. Um, a, a fellow that I know is having a documentary done about him right now by Bal- Balboa Productions. So um, if still like, – because it's Stallone's old Rambo character, which is a very perverted way to to, to <laughs> uh, portray a Green Beret, but still cool. Um, that would be interesting if you'd be, in, you know, if you'd want to step up for something like that. Well, and you know what? If you, I I keep going back to funding because that's my job to keep finding the money. But uh, you know, to tell an, an Indigenous story, I think you're going to find the support for that. Yeah, that's that's part of my thought process on that yeah i think it's the best avenue to get some support you know because the hollywood support for canadian story you're right that ain't going to happen but if it's but it's an american story because it's the birth of the green berets and um so we can put all that together one i think it would be commercial and i think you could put together a good pitch that uh, people would say yeah i think that is commercial you know, and uh, it would be <laughs> quite the wake-up call for uh, all the American military fans, that's for sure. They're like, what? That's where that started? What the hell? It's, it's good to be able to tell stories about that, the brotherhood with uh, Canada and the United States as well. I like to build that bridge. Yeah, and in, in too often we ignore that. Um, our forces here in Canada and the U.S. forces train together. Um, you look at our senior personnel, they have all served in major positions within the U.S. forces. Um, over the six and a half years that Karen and I have done interviews regarding Afghanistan, uh, we've spoken to, interviewed senior American personnel, and uh, they have nothing but the greatest respect for Canadian forces and the caliber of training that we have here in Canada, is remarkable. Uh, even, sorry for our American folks out there, but uh, the thought that every Canadian soldier is trained to the level of an Army Ranger, um, it was grudgingly accepted that that is true. So I've always remarkable. wondered what the parallel would be. Uh, I know the Ranger course is, uh, is a son of a gun. I know a guy that topped it. <laughs> and he's like, well, there's no way a Canadian topped our course. So we went and did it again. <laughs> he did it twice. And um, uh, there's a fellow I'd love to get a hold of, Ward Brown. He was my sergeant major. And uh, then he ended up uh, getting commissioned. But last I heard of him, he's not doing so hot. Oh. So... Would uh, would hey anybody know where Ward Brown is, Sergeant Major Brown? I'd love to get hold of him, but uh, yeah, um, the anybody any of the American forces that uh, have worked with us side by side, they're like, oh, <laughs> you guys are pretty switched on. You actually know your stuff, you know. 
but uh, we used to make fun of the Marine Corps, but everybody that I've talked to that has uh, worked with the Marines in Afghanistan uh, say that they're, that's a real switched-on force. They're, they're really good, good soldiers. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we, we uh, were involved in the, um, the creation of a film for uh, 2002, so it would have been the 20th anniversary of our first fallen soldiers in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. also uh, Operation Anaconda. And, uh, and so we were very fortunate uh, to be able to interview American personnel uh, who, who were there on the ground, incl- including Colonel, now former Lieutenant General uh, Frank Roshinsky. And um, it's remarkable. For example, he even said to us on camera, Canadian snipers are unsurpassed. Yeah, they're best in the world by far. He said, we just did not have that capability. And it was amazing. And he he actually told a story about one particular incident where um, he was in Op Anaconda and they were being fired upon these unfortunate Americans were dropped down into a valley. Uh, they had the Taliban exactly where they were, sur- uh, exactly where they wanted them. As he said, we were surrounded. And so they were getting fired on from all directions. And uh, this Canadian sniper identified a guy up on near the top of one of the ridges. And instead of firing, he turned to a colonel and asked him to come over and take a look. The army colonel came over. Now there were not to be, to be any Americans up there. And the army colonel looked in the scope and said, that's an American special forces helmet. And Frank Roshinsky said, you have to understand, this is the height of battle. And that sniper had the presence of mind not to pull the trigger, but to confirm that target. That takes extreme control. And he was, you know, he just felt that it was remarkable. There's an um, interesting thing that happens when you're in operations, and th- things can slow down. And where you think that you'd be kind of panicky and, oh, my God, uh, the opposite tends to happen. Not to all of us, but uh, I definitely experienced it when things got hairy. Things just slow down, and it hits you later. <laughs> you know. But in the moment, things slow down, and, 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 you're, and you're calm about it. Um, in the former Yugoslavia, sometimes they'd shoot at us just to see if we'd jump, and we wouldn't. We just look at the direction of because uh, we knew that um, if they meant to hit us, they would have hit us. Um, they didn't, so that's not the intent. And uh, we we just pause, look at the direction of fire, and smile. It'd freak them the hell out, <laughs> and they'd stop shooting. And um, but that's uh, tough to imagine for for those that uh, haven't been in those situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tra- it's training. Right and and, um, and discipline, 
I, I'm thinking because the, the the number of people that we have interviewed uh, from all variety of uh, conflicts and missions, uh, the one thing that really um, really make, makes an impact on me when you talk about what people are proud of uh, when they look back on their mission is uh, they're proud of 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 the performance of of the people that they're serving with. And they're proud of the fact that their training got them there and got them through that situation and um, performed above and beyond expectations. Just the, the excellence in theater, it seems to be a common denominator with Canadian troops. Uh, do you know the story of uh, Jess LaRochelle? Yes. At, um, At Medusa, uh, I believe. A fella from the RCR, the Royal Canadian Regiment, that very much deserves the Victoria Cross. And yet, uh, despite all of the support from all the top uh, former brass, Chief of Defence Staff, uh, Rick Hillier, um, and on and on and on, and Aaron O'Toole, and um, I mean, the list just goes on forever. And yet, the awards committee said, nope, what he got is good enough. If Jessalyn Rochelle doesn't get the VC and now he won't. Nobody deserves it. Mm. You know, it's like, I, I don't know what is going on in the heads of these, uh, uh, the awards committee. I, I, I don't get it. It's, uh, it's, it's as if they're protecting it for, for God knows what, you know, but it's, um, we, we don't, it's part of the habit of not telling our stories. What was his rank? Oh, I don't remember. I think he was a corporal. It's it's interesting. And the reason I ask that question, there are other oh, guys. I know exactly why you're asking. There are other guys that also deserve the Victoria Cross. Um, Australia awarded Victoria Crosses. The Brits awarded Victoria Crosses uh, from Afghanistan. And um, Willie McDonald. Now, in the White School incident, Willie won the Star of Military Valor. Um, subsequent to that, he won the Val- he won the Vimy Award. But it was a committee that had to determine who was going to win that award. And one of our generals felt that it needs to be an officer. It should be an officer. We can't give this sergeant the award. And a good friend of mine, former uh, head of Canada's Army, Kent Foster, said, if this man doesn't deserve the Vimy Award, then we are tarnishing this award. Because if anyone deserves it, he does. And therefore, they ended up giving it to, to Willie. But Willie's one of those people that could be on that list for a VC as well. Yeah, there's a lot of um, officer nepotism, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, like, I knew exactly where you were going with that. And uh, it's true. There, we see When you see an officer with a great big old rack uh, on there, it's because they put each other up for the medals. And um, there's just something about these medals that they don't get treated the way that they should. And when I hear a lot of the conversations about medals, you know what I hear? I want my medal. That's what I hear. Um, 
because there's too many of those and then they end up getting getting one and there's not enough of i was just doing my job mm-hmm. you know I, I don't need a medal for it i'm fine thanks I hear more of the, I was just doing my job, you know. From and they're the friends. ones that actually deserve it. Yeah. And, I, and because in my experience, um, a lot of soldiers who are awarded medals get feel, very, feel very uh, humble uh, um, and perhaps undeserving because they are even maybe a bit embarrassed that they're receiving a medal over one of their um, comrades who was right beside them. Yeah. Who they feel that, you know, we all deserved a medal. Why, why am I getting it? I, I've seen a lot of res- reticence about receiving medals. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it speaks to the humility of the Canadian soldier that they, uh, they feel good just, just being able to, to be out there doing their job and, and with their brothers and sisters, and, uh, and that's good enough for them. And so I, I wonder if there's a point along the way where uh, some of the people that might be appointing those medals uh, in the field, you know, I know after the action they have to go through a process where they you know, kind of look at everybody's uh, actions and decide who, who should be put forward for a medal. And I wonder if there's a, a point at which uh, those guys also think, you know, we were all just doing our job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and 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 that attitude, I think, is one of humility and, and professionalism. The one, and, too. and they're the ones that deserve the most quite often, but um, that doesn't tend to be officers uh, for for whatever reason. And there's some good good people I've met that are, that uh, were officers, really good people, um, but they don't they operate in silos. Officers don't operate the way NCOs operate. We are all a team environment. And officers are not. They're all careerists. That's right. And um, and that's just the way the structure is. And because of that, there's a different culture with NCOs than there is with the officer class. Um, it makes you a different person. And uh, and you see examples of this again and again. Yeah. And you see remarkable officers who finally leave because they just cannot handle the BS any longer. Or they're standing up for the troops and uh, the other officers are like, just make them do it. It's like, well, yeah, you know, you got to do what you got to do, but this is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, wh- there's no need to treat them like this. And uh, if you're one of the ones that stand up, so one of the good ones that stand up for the troops when something is just wrong, well, there goes your career right out the window. I think, I think you're talking about leadership. So, you know, um, because there's incredible leaders. Oh my and, God. Yes. And unfortunately as human beings go, we, uh, the Canadian armed forces suffers poor leadership at times as well. But I do think that there are incredible leaders in the officer class that, uh, you know, pr- probably, um, put themselves forward with the same amount of humility and quietly get their job done. But unfortunately, they don't end up climbing the ranks. Well, um, our former um, uh, CDS before Wayne Air and all the... <laughs> it was well known that uh, John Vance was not an honorable human being. We knew it. The, the other officers around him knew it. But there's a certain type of person that goes to the top, the, the, the careerists. So he had no business ever being the top dog. Um, but he was, mm-hmm. because uh, th- that is, uh, it wasn't a meritocracy. It was um, moving and shaking and palm greasing and uh, and somebody that should not have been there, 
got there. Now, I don't know jack squat about Wayne Eyre, but um, so I, I couldn't comment one or the other. But uh, John Vance was well known to be the man that he turned out to be in the media. If that that can, was well known. If, if I can put in a word, um, and again, we've spent a lot of time with personnel of all ranks and people who know Wayne Eyre. Um, I think he is the right man at the right time to handle the myriad of problems that we have with the Canadian forces today. As one uh, former general said to me, of all those guys in Ottawa, the one that has the intellectual capacity to be able to handle this situation is Wayne Eyre. And integrity. Absolutely. And in fact, um, many of the soldiers told me his nickname was the monk, the warrior monk. So uh, when Karen and I interviewed him uh, in Ottawa, uh, he had just he had postponed the meeting that we were supposed to do the previous day because he was being briefed by the then chief of defense staff and the minister of defense. Because he was to be the very first non-American officer to take command of American forces in South Korea. And all I can say is he has the greatest respect, not only in the Canadian forces, but also in our, in, uh, from our allies as well. There's a, there's a few names that um, are beloved among the troops. Um, I had the good pleasure the honor of having rick hillier on and uh rick's a great guy i don't agree with him on a bunch of stuff but it doesn't matter love him you know and um he was known as the soldier soldier that's it yeah. uh his <laughs> his credentials are unbelievable what this man has done you know i've been everywhere man <laughs> and that's 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 rick um unbelievable what he what he did in his career but he was loved by the soldiers uh, and for the same reason that I said, uh, because he would stand up for the soldiers. And he would say no when it was time to say no. And that's why Rick was uh, uh, as loved as he was. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, uh, Lou McKenzie, there's a guy I'd love to have on the show. Only um, got uh, I met him at the 100th, uh, so that was neat. Just a quick, I was like, oh my God, that's Lou McKenzie. <laughs> no, I, was, want- I was a little bit uh, fanboy in there. Now, if you want to talk about ranks or racks, yeah. check out his rack. On Lou McKenzie. Yeah. <laughs> but I think he deserved every one of those. Well, he's, he's a well-loved guy. Uh, and uh, also because he was a no, no BS Patricia, mm-hmm. you know, and um, uh, the troops trusted him, you know, and that's not something that, that always happens. But, uh, yeah, there, there are definitely a few names there of beloved and um, where we, we'd follow him into hell. Uh, Lou McKenzie, Rick Hellier, those are definitely two of the ones that we would fall into hell. No problem. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, if it called me up today, hey, Mark, we got to go do a thing. I'm like, all right, let's go. Yeah. You know, giddy well, up. And don't forget Ian Hope. I don't, and don't, we have, don't know. Inter- oh, my gosh. All right, so uh, Colonel Ian Hope, uh, we have interviewed so many soldiers that say we would march into hell and back behind Ian Hope. And so he's a remarkable human being. Um, We mentioned earlier about um, Andrew Eichenboom, 
who was killed in the G-Wagon. Um, the two guys got out. The G-Wagon was on fire. Ian Hope had to make the decision and passed it down by orders that everybody stand back because, of course, you had rounds cooking off and so on. Um, just let it burn down, and then we'll put the fire out, wrap it in a, in a tarp, and we'll get it to Mortuary Affairs. Um, Ian met the vehicle at Mortuary Affairs, spoke to um, the fellows who were involved in bringing that vehicle back. He then walked to the G-Wagon, opened the back door, and got inside. He spent about 20 minutes inside that vehicle. In fact, uh, what was the name of the soldier who was explaining to us? Hugh Atwell. Hugh Atwell. Hugh Atwell said, I felt like he was communing with Ike and Boom's spirit. And so when we interviewed Ian Hope, we asked him about that. We were told that you did this. And he said, when I was doing that, my thought was, if I ever meet this soldier's family, I don't know the right or the wrong of the war. I don't know whether we should have really been there or not, but I could tell them honestly that he was touched by a friend. And he said, you know, that's part of command. You don't pass on to others what you're not willing to do yourself. Mm. And also, you don't pass on to your subordinates something that could cause them trauma. To me, that is remarkable leadership. That's leading from the front. It's how it's supposed to be. Absolutely. All of the stories like that and and others, uh, ones that we were talking about earlier, about how Vaughn Ingram died, Mm -hmm. that's a lot of stories in your heads. How has that affected you two personally? Karen? For me, I feel it's such a, privilege and an honor to be able to be the caretaker of these stories and to have the opportunity to speak with uh, the veterans that have been involved in this history. Um, I, I feel that we've been entrusted um, to tell these stories properly. And for me, uh, this has become life's work to make sure that we honor uh, the guys who fell the guys who came home to tell the stories and make sure that Canadians don't forget that Canadians did incredible things overseas. Uh, for me personally, um, I, I feel that um, myself, I've come through that place where I can cope with all of the stories that I hear. And as a, as a woman, I know um, some veterans are not necessarily um, wanting to tell me everything, maybe with a bit of a protective instinct, or maybe even... It's more that you're a civilian. As a civilian, and and I think maybe as a woman too. Well, maybe. It has more to do with civilian status. Yeah, and and I can completely understand that. Um, But there are enough times when when the veteran in the chair will transcend into his memories and trust and feel safe 
to talk about these things um, in full color. And I, I am honored that they would choose to tell these stories. It must to be me. difficult to hear For them sure. sometimes. It's uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, some some people don't hold back at all. I mean, sometimes we get every detail, and uh, and to me as an archivist, I just want to take it all in, and I and I feel honored to be entrusted with all this information. There's a difference seeing something on a screen than hearing it firsthand from from the person that was there. Um, and especially when the emotion is coming through, because in this situation, um, it's almost like you transcend from being a, an interviewer to a psychologist because you, uh, you now are working with emotion and working through emotion and, and, and especially with our interviews, uh, from Afghanistan veterans, although I do find this with peacekeeping veterans, uh, from all decades that. Uh, when that emo- emotion starts to flow, you know that they've gone into a place where they need to heal. Yeah, and and the the best part of it, the most fulfilling part of this job uh, for me is knowing that we have been able to facilitate a little bit of that healing. So there's a responsibility, I think, on our part. Do you feel that uh, that you've been harmed? traumatically by hearing these stories i have not i know robert is dying to tell his side of the story because <laughs> <laughs> one at a time robert it's ladies first for christ's sake absolutely breathing in my shoulder i see him he's chomping at the bit over we usually there. tap each other you know oh it's my turn buzz off i'm talking um so i i had a a, a situation in my life when i first started in this um, with this fascination with history, where uh, my story began when I learned about my great uncle who was killed in the Second World War. And he was a Seaforth Highlander and he was killed in Italy. And I went through a journey during that Um, during that discovery. And for me, that was a very emotional journey. And it was a spiritual journey. When you connect almost by a silver cord with your ancestry, uh, that Mm. is a very powerful experience. And so I literally, um, and this was before my first conversation with Robert. Robert and I are family. That's right. Robert's married to my first cousin. And so before I ever met you, Robert, I spent five years crying because of the connection with ancestry and because of the um, that being able to almost live through that the trauma of that history without actually having lived through it um, and by the time I came out of that place and in fact I went through a spiritual healing and I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to meet Hub Gray. Hub no. Gray was a Patricia from the Korean War mm-hmm. and he was a spiritual healer and he actually <clears throat> took me to a place where um He's a First Nations guy? He's no. not. Oh, no. Okay. He's, he's got the name for it. He yeah, he's a he's of British origin um but uh, incredible incredible guy. He's no longer with us, but he worked through that with me. And and when I came out of that experience, I I I felt like I was in a different place. I I was healed, if you know, and in a in a weird kind of way. Uh, from the trauma that I had experienced just living through the emotional aspect of finding an ancestor. So when I started this work, I started it with a purpose. 
And I've never lost sight of that purpose. And so for me, I am focused and I take that responsibility seriously. Um, And I feel like the emotional upheaval is behind me. But I use that as my fuel, as my passion. One of the taglines of uh, the show, I've only got a few shirts made, but it's uh, Recover Out Loud. Mm -hmm. And by recovering out loud, there's so many things that happen. First, uh, it helps you process uh, your own stuff. You know, uh, telling your story is a powerful thing. And when you do these interviews, there is a healing, whether you're cognizant of it or not. Um, When you give somebody the platform to tell their story as you guys have done so many times, hundreds of times, uh, that is a healing moment for the person that you are interviewing every time. I guarantee you that that's true. It's part of my drive to do this show is giving people a platform to tell their story because they wouldn't otherwise have a platform to, to tell their story. And there's something about feeling that you have a voice is, um, it's magical. The number one human emotional need is affirmation. What better way to give somebody affirmation than turning on a camera or pulling up a microphone and giving somebody the studio experience that you're having right now and really helping somebody truly feel that they are heard, that they are not invisible. And you do that uh, with with your work and you've healed, uh, at least in part, you've helped the healing process for hundreds of soldiers and those that listen to the stories as well, which is why I'm hoping more of them uh, become available for public consumption, you know, because people want to hear these stories. You're right. You're right. Um, Many of the interviews that we have done include a lot of tears. And um, what is remarkable, and we've done hundreds and hundreds of interviews of personnel, like I said, of all ranks. Um, So often when it is done, they thank us. It's that maybe the first opportunity that they have had in years to kind of open that box and look inside and begin to explore that experience. Um, We we were in Petawawa and... um, we had General Mayalowski who came in to be interviewed, and he brought his um, his warrant officer along with him. And so the general did his interview, and he did a great job, and he told of his experiences in Afghanistan. And when he's done, he got out of the chair, and he turned to his warrant, Sean Mercer, and said, your turn, get in the chair. Mercer had no intention of doing it, but he was ordered to get in the chair. <laughs> Voluntold. And um, what was remarkable, you know, I was sitting behind the camera, and camera's rolling, and he turned to me and he said, okay, this is going to be like two cases of beer in the garage with the guys. I'm going to tell you things that I have never told my wife. And that's sort of emblematic of the experience that we go through. Now, (laughs) as I say, there are a lot of tears, and you asked if we were affected. Karen has her her method or reason reason for processing it in the way that she has. Scotch or whiskey? 
Uh, I don't think she drinks Ginger any ale? longer. <laughs> <laughs> For me personally, um, I relive those stories. You may have heard it in my voice now. I really love those stories. Every time I think of them or tell them. And I remember uh, we were interviewing um, the chief psychiatrist for Veterans Affairs. And Karen had to go back to the hotel and get something, so she was a few minutes late. And so I was explaining to the woman in the chair that, you know, this is what we do. And we've done this for years, and we've interviewed these people. And I began to relate to her stories. And, of course, at that point, you know, I'm getting choked up, and there are tears falling down my face. And she turned to me and said, you know you're suffering from associated PTSD. And my answer to her was, no way. No way. I'm just emotional. And I don't deserve to have anything like that. The men and women who we have interviewed have a right to deal with that trauma. As far as I'm concerned, I'm just honored to be able to do what I'm doing, and we will keep doing it. We often um, are douchey to ourselves. We're actually the worst for it, soldier to soldier. You know, oh, I got your six. I got, I got you, man. Yeah, fuck off. You know, we're, we're douchey to each other because if we don't understand what's going on with ourselves, how can you provide support to somebody else? Mm-hmm. And part of the being douchey to ourselves is doing what you're doing because you're being douchey to yourself. Uh, and by saying I don't or feeling I don't have, um, like, how could it be me when these other people had it so much and they have good reason. So so much worse. And we call uh, I call it uh, the trauma Olympics. You know, well, there's no gold medal for that fucking thing, okay? <laughs> uh, that's not something that you want to win. Um, and and then the, the stolen valor types go the other direction, right? Like, maestro, I can one-up you on the, oh, that's, that's not traumatic. I'll tell you something that's traumatic. That's rare. It doesn't happen a lot. More often, it's, uh, well, what I did wasn't so bad. You know, the other people had it worse. That's what I hear a lot more often. And at the end of the day, trauma is trauma is trauma. Uh, hearing the stories, some of the um, things that I can't tell my wife aren't things I did. They're stories I know. Yeah. And stories I know to be true that I can't say out loud. The term unspeakable is a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's why the veterans from the Second World War didn't speak because... Because uh, there was a lot of unspeakable going on. There was a lot of unspeakable. And then un- a lot of them went decades before ever telling anybody about what they experienced. And especially their wives and their families. Um, I think that was probably a protective instinct. But also maybe because uh, other people can't relate um, it's you don't necessarily want to share with people that can't relate because it might diminish what you remember to be true. Um, but the the old Second World War vets were some of them the the most wonderful to to interview, and um, I I'm I'm very uh, grateful that I had the opportunity for a couple of years to interview as many as I possibly could, and I made some wonderful friendships with those guys, and uh, I remember. 
um, you know, those relationships, I, I was often there at, at their deathbed even, you know, and, and at their funerals. And, and one of my favorites, Ernie Bagstad, um, a C4 from the Second World War in Italy, I was literally there in the hospital, uh, you know, holding his hand um, at just the, the night that he died. And he said to me that, uh, that he told me that he loved me and he said, you know, I've told you things that I've never told anybody not even my wife. And um, to me, that's such a great privilege, such a great privilege to be the caretaker of all of those stories. But it also means that um, you were a soft place to land. Because uh, you're right, like most of us, especially, you know, uh, combat, combat arms types, uh, it's been a while since I've heard it, but uh, every now and then, have you ever killed anybody? You know, and um, people say that out of, uh, and I understand, because I'm I'm curious too about, uh, you know, my friends that are Afghanistan veterans. I want to know too. I don't ask, but I want to know. And if it happens to be offered, okay. But the reason we don't like answer, there's two reasons why we don't like answering that question. One, that's like asking your favorite sexual position. It's kind of personal. None of your fucking business. Um, so there's that two, there's no answer I can give that a person can appreciate whether I have or have not is not an answer that can be appreciated by somebody that hasn't been in a combat zone. Um, cause taking a life isn't cool. It's a burden and a burden more for some than others. You know, there's lots of high-functioning sociopaths out there that it doesn't bother them at all. Um, And there are circumstances where I'm sure it wouldn't bother me at all. Um, There are those circumstances where it's like, well, fuck you. You know, (laughs) you got to do what you got to do. But there's those other circumstances where you're not sure if it was righteous or not. And that eats people up and drives people to suicide. It's, uh, It's not a small question to ask. It's a huge question to ask somebody any way you slice it. And the person asking the question does not know what they're asking. They have no idea. They have no idea what they just asked, you know. Um, But if you're a soft place to land, and, and that's what proper peer support is. That's why you have culturally competent peer support. So if you've got yourself to a position where somebody feels safe to tell you that, that that's a huge level of trust. It's a huge level of trust where I can tell you without being judged, without um, uh, you, you asking a really stupid question <laughs> for for follow up or having a bizarre reaction. Um, so that that's a that's a wonderful place of trust that you've earned for for people to tell you those stories, Karen. Because you're right, there are things that uh, my wife doesn't want to know, and I haven't told her. You know, and, uh, and most of them aren't things I did. They're things I know that are true. Um, because of my position in the veteran community, you can imagine the stories that I've received. Um, unfortunately, uh, as you're both creative people, uh, that is not a bonus in, uh, in this world uh, when we're hearing these stories because it means that we can live the experience through somebody else. Whereas somebody who's not creative... Uh, might not be able to do that to the same level. So when a dear friend of mine told me of the first time he took a life, 
It's as if I did it myself. Mm-hmm. It was as if I was there myself personally. And um, so th- that's, that's tougher than just hearing a story because you live other people's stories. That's a whole other thing. And you can't really do that uh, by watching a movie or a TV show, but by what you've done, immersing yourself into our world uh, to such a degree I mean, I I would uh, talk to either of you as I would talk to any combat veteran because of um, the time that you've spent in our world. That's a great Thank compliment. You. Thank, you. Thank you. It's an honor. It truly is. Um, to have that level of I wouldn't call it recognition, but trust. It's trust. And um, I think that's really why we do it. We we want to tell their stories, but we also have to be mindful of the impact of those stories, not necessarily on the public, but on the personnel that were there at that time. That's why, for example, when we interview someone, our documents tell them that this is their intellectual property. And we will not use that material in any way unless they approve of how it's being used. Hearing these stories, we call it war porn. It's uh, it's not easy on somebody. And I find that the more... I would guess from your perspective, and please uh, uh, chime in, I would guess that the more you do it, the deeper your understanding of the stories get. And even stories that you had a surface understanding of, say, 10 years ago, the more you do it, you'll go back and you go, oh. And the depth of understanding. So this pool of information that you keep collecting gets deeper and deeper, and your understanding of these waters gets more and more poignant. And um, and I would guess that the more you do it, the more and the more you understand the importance of these stories, the more you do it, and the more you do it, um, the more you understand the importance, the more driven you are to continue, mm-hmm. despite um, the fact that these are, this is not these are not still waters this is a this is a difficult place to spend time i think it's a responsibility that we have because we have developed this expertise uh, there are lots of people doing it there are lots of people that are are doing these kinds of interviews but um i think because of the 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 close relationships that robert and i have had um with many of the regiments with many serving personnel we're able to, um, we've got some doors open to us that maybe some other civilians don't have. And so we, we really want to um, make the most of those opportunities to interview as many people as we can while these doors are open because, because we're doing this and, and because we can. So let's just keep doing it. And, um, and, and you know, um, the, the historians of 100 years from now hopefully will benefit from, from this work that we've done. But as I said before, this is life's work. Mm-hmm. It's you know, every amazing. Now, every now and then somebody throws us a bone and we make a dollar, <laughs> not much more than a dollar. But, you know, um, 
but it sort of doesn't matter. Uh, we just keep doing it. Those that are doing this work, it's just incredible. Just in Alberta alone, I mean, there's Al Cameron up yep. in Sylvan Lake uh, that is collecting these stories, not publishing them on YouTube. I gave him a hard time. He just interviewed me. Um, I had, I've had him on the show, but I, a few, I don't know, a month ago maybe. And um, and then uh, Dixon Christie up in Edmonton. Yeah, you know, we know both uh, those folks. Yeah, he's, he's a character, and um, hell of a cook. He's a vegetarian chef. He's really, really good, delicious. But um, they're doing similar work, collecting stories and collecting and collecting and collecting. But both Dixon uh, with uh, the Battle Scars. Uh, now, the Battle Scars uh, series. You can watch. Mm-hmm. You can go to YouTube and you can actually watch, uh, listen to these stories. So they're I've avail- been interviewed for Battle Scars, in fact. Well, that's awesome. So, mm-hmm. so you know that's available for public consumption. Uh, Al Cameron's isn't. He's, he collects all these stories, but uh, they're not loaded up to YouTube or Vimeo or or, or whatever. So not much of his work um, uh, is is available, so you can actually see it. We're working on ways to alleviate that situation. And I think Robert alluded to one of the reasons why is because we have made this commitment that we will not ever allow any of this material to be manipulated in any way um, because that has happened. And, uh, and as soon as you dump something onto the net, it can be downloaded and manipulated by other people with, with different agendas. And so we were just extremely careful about how we use this information. But um, we, are, we are looking at ways of, of, of getting out all of this information to the greatest degree possible. And one of the, one of the reasons why we want to make this documentary series, and we're ho- hoping very much that um, we get the contract to do this in the next year or so, um, the documentary series about the war in Afghanistan, is as a follow-on to our Mission Afghanistan project, so much material was left on the cutting room floor. That's right. I mean, there was just a tip of the iceberg uh, from those 250 interviews that was actually used in, I mean, and we ended up making yeah. 450 mini productions. That's for right. The Have you ever got any funding from CPR? Nope. Because they're one of the biggest donors out there. Um, they're amazing. Uh, they're one of the biggest donors for Homes for Heroes with um, um, Dave Howard. Um, yeah, like they're, they're really friendly to the veteran community. That's a good tip. Yeah, that's worth exploring. Mm-hmm. I'll, well, leave also, that, I'll leave that to, Kat, uh, to Karen. That'll that's, be my job. Well, also, just, just a thought. Um, so I've been a part of different productions over the years. Um, I was an executive, no, uh, an associate producer of um, Three Feet from Gold. It was a documentary on the making of the book. So to be an associate producer, I spent $5,000 American to buy 250 copies of the DVD of the documentary before it was even made. So these are ways to fund these projects. And there are like the Veterans Association Food Bank or the Veterans Food Bank of Calgary. I know them both, um, two separate organizations. But for them to get that, keep that uh, grant money flowing in, they have to show I'm supporting veterans this way, I'm supporting veterans that way. And um, so these are all organizations that have these funds. You put a 50 of them together or a hundred of them together saying, okay, here's the film project, whether it be 
the one I'm pitching or, or, or not. But here's the film project. Uh, how would you like to be an associate producer? And that's this level of investment. How would you like to be an executive producer? That's this level of investment. And you'll be in the credits and you'll be at the, um, uh, this is what was offered to me. Mm-hmm. I was in the film credits. Um, I was in the VIP room for uh, we're meeting all like Bob Proctor, may rest in peace. All these people, right? So I was there for the movie premiere. I was there for um, in, in the VIP room. I'm in the movie credits. Plus, I got 250 copies of the movie itself that I could use for marketing, handing out to clients, whatever. At the end of the day, they raised the funds to do it, and uh, and a lot of funds at that. So a model like that, is that something you've ever done or have considered? Because that would do it. And then you yeah. got all the funds you need. I have it. I mean, I, I, so in our do, partnership, do you, need a director, the, do you need a director of funding? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. So I'm the producer and I'm actually just this lowly historian that I've, I've jumped into this role as a, as a film producer. And uh, I let, don't me, have let me just the, jump in here. She is actually very good at raising money. Okay. The military museums relies on her to raise money to be able to do the work they do. And I have so, raised a dollar here yeah, and there. Yeah, yeah, she's done that. So the, the all humility aside, Karen is very good at that. But I could use some new ideas, absolutely. Now, uh, Karen and I are currently working on a new production. So we have several projects working simultaneously, but this goes back to the Second World War, and it's called A Child of War. And in A Child of War, we're talk, it's about a young Italian boy. Um, the community, was it Frozenone? Yeah, Frozenone in the yeah. Leary Valley. So, yeah, go ahead. And um, his mother had, let's just say she died. Um, the father had been an Italian soldier who was killed. For months, he was in the countryside all by himself. He was a little five, five-year-old boy. Five years old. He had gone fallow. When the Canadian soldiers found him, he was howling like an animal. He really had gone... Gone feral, you mean? He'd gone feral. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, so the Canadian soldiers took him in, cleaned him up, gave him a rank, and literally for 18 months was mm-hmm. it? He lived with the Canadian soldiers, and um, they made him a little uniform. They made him several little uniforms, and he even they made him a dispatch rider. They gave him a little bicycle, and he would ride around with with messages. They gave him a non-performing sidearm. Um, they taught I him mean, how to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing is that um, that turned that young man's life around. And uh, he ended up uh, becoming an engineer, traveling around the world, and had a very successful life. Wow. And he st- is still living today. He's 87 years old, mm-hmm. I believe. And, um, I wonder if he's still howling. <laughs> I don't know if he's still howling. Uh, but So we're actually making a movie currently uh, called A Child of War. And it's really that story of how this child was found by Canadian soldiers and nurse back to health, turned around, and um, set him on his way to a successful life. Uh, so we're raising money on that project right now uh, and working with the Italian community, both in Canada and 
in in Italy to raise the money to be able to tell this story. The whole reason that we I invited you out here, we're at a minute at an hour fifteen, and we haven't even started on uh, the whole reason it got you here in the first place. So let's switch gears. Sure. So uh, I had the good fortune of being invited by you folks to be a, uh, an extra. Even got a little speaking part uh, in uh, what's the name of the movie? Fallen Heroes: Their Journey Home. And what's it about? You want to dive in, Karen? Yeah, we, you know, I, I, we did allude to this, this movie that is a labor of love for Robert and I. And uh, in 2012, we were working for the Patricias. Um, we were organizing the event Heroes Hockey Challenge, and we were, were working with um, Jim Butters at the time. And Jim Butters was telling us one of his uh, war stories from Afghanistan. And, um, and, and, and Robert and I uh, both kind of stopped in our tracks and thought, what, you know, this is a story that needs to be told. And it was a story about our first four fallen soldiers in, uh, in Kandahar uh, after the, they, they were killed after the friendly fire incident and the ensuing events that led to the creation of the tradition of the ramp ceremonies in Afghanistan and then subsequently the Highway of Heroes. And this just felt like such a, a, a Canadian story that... Perhaps we should say their names. Mark Leger, mm-hmm. Ainsworth Dyer. Yeah. What are the other two? Richard Green. Uh-oh. Isn't that terrible? No, we'll come up with it. Richard Green, Ainsworth Dyer. Mark Leger and okay, I'm still working on. Help me out, Mark. Didn't know there's a pop quiz, did you? No, no I don't remember. I don't remember the, the fourth name. There's a, there's an Ainsworth Dyer Bridge, which is a bridge that I've repelled off of many many times. Nathan um, Smith. Nathan Smith. That's right. Yeah. There we go. Nathan yeah. Smith. Thank yeah. you. And forgive Thank you. forgive us for not uh, coming up with that right away. Um. So when those four were killed, it was such a jolt uh, for for all of us in Canada and f- especially for the troops on the ground. And that story is so personal for the men and women that were on that tour. Um, and it was an A-10 warthog that killed them, right? That's- uh, F-16. It was an F-16. F-16. Uh, and it was a 500-pound JDAM. Um, I've got documents. I literally have all the communications that happened between AWACS and the ground and his um, partner in the air. Uh, he was actually the wingman. A little closer. He was actually the wingman. And um, uh, it's remarkable. I think where Karen is going with this is that the Canadians decided Jim Butters was given the job by Pat Stogren, his commanding officer. I don't know what you're going to do. But whatever you do, I want you to do the right thing. Now, we sent those guys to Afghanistan. We didn't even have enough flags. We had body bags. We had no transfer cases. We had no process for handling our fallen personnel. There was no mortuary affairs department. Nothing. Nothing. Didn't expect anybody to die, I guess. And so these um, fallen personnel... um, their bodies were taken to the American Mortuary Affairs. Jim Butters arrived there. He said, okay, how do you guys handle this? I remember Jim. And frankly, Mortuary Affairs told him, uh, we take the body bags, 
We fill these transfer cases with ice. We put a flag on the transfer case, and we get it out of here under cover of darkness before anybody sees. And he said, that's not the Canadian way. He went back to his tent that night and drew up the plans that became the international standard for the uh, ramp ceremony. He created the very first ramp ceremony. Jim Butters did. Jim Butters did. He went to the sergeant major who was responsible for CAF at the time, um, Uni Savusa, presented his plan, and Savusa said, you can't do that. You can't have a 1,000 soldiers standing behind a C-17 in the middle of a war zone. They were still very much in range, and... um, uh we have worked very closely with the Americans yes. because we wanted to get this story right. So the the, the very first thing we did was uh, we listened to everything Jim told us um, very carefully, took as many notes as possible, then started to go out there and talk to as many people as we could find to corroborate this story. And the really interesting thing is is that uh, of course the most important people to talk to were the Americans because we didn't want to we didn't want to create a you know, and us versus them or, you conflict. know, any kind of conflict. We And and we also didn't want to mistell the story. So one of the most important things for us is authenticity. We do not want to misrepresent anybody, understanding that everybody has their perspectives, wherever they, you know, whatever their, their aspect of the story is. But the more perspectives you can get, the more accurate, the more authentic the story is going mm-hmm. to be. You're covering a hell of a lot of ground in this movie. You're covering the Fallen Four. You're, uh, and you're covering the, the white school. Uh, so what was the significance of the white school? Well, again, we had four personnel that were killed in that 24-hour period. Um, there was a level of heroism in that that, again, Canadians don't know about. You know, yes, we had 14 guys trapped inside the outhouse. We'll call it the outhouse politely. Um, but they were trapped and they were going to die. There were three remaining guys who could actually fight of those 14. Willie McDonald turned to um, John Hamilton, who was down. He was wounded at that time. And he said, John, I'm going to take the three remaining guys and I'm going to assault the school. And John said, <laughs> Willie, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. And he said, well, John, that's all I know. That's all I know to do. And he said, Willie, if you go there and do that, you're going to die. And if you die, we die. And so um, the guys back at, you know, where the the labs were, uh, they were listening to what was going on and they were seeing what was going on. And the labs, two of them, told Ian Hope, okay, um, we're going to go help these guys out. And Ian Hope, all he said was, good luck. So the lav operators actually traversed uh, territory that that later on they found out there were 11, 11 mines. It was a no man's land. In that ground. The fact that they somehow avoided them got 
to the outhouse and were able to extract those guys is amazing. So it's a remarkable story. Uh, Ian Hope would say, well, it's not the most important one during um, Task Force Orion. Orion. Um, However, I think that it was important for many reasons. Um, there There were two stars of military valor, one in that episode. We did lose four soldiers who need to be honored. And there were stories of guys who were injured and pulled themselves out of their hospital bed to be able to become part of that ramp ceremony and lead the ramp ceremony for their fallen brothers. That's something I think that Canadians need to understand. And so maybe we're Patricia-centric only because we're in the West, but you know, there are other stories that needed to be told. Absolutely. And, and the, I, yeah, I think, sorry, if I can interrupt, yeah, Robert. Um, you know, when you say we're covering a, a heck of a lot of ground, it, true we are, but what we're really doing, we're not telling the story of the war in Afghanistan, really. What we're talking about is how the war in Afghanistan impacted Canadians. And we're choosing examples, examples that we're very familiar with, um, examples that we know the guys who and the, the women who fought there. And we are using those as examples to uh, create a, a, a sense for Canadians what it must have been like to be there and how those families have been impacted by this. So uh, we have other stories that we're going to tell as well, but each of them examples of what that war was like and how it impacted the, the, the vets, the people that didn't come home, the families. The first person, the guy who was there on the ground in that tick, we're not throwing in some kind of narrator that says, on this date they went here and did that. No, that's not the way we're telling the story. We allow the personnel, the soldier, to tell his or her story. And then we'll do a recreation that depicts that story. But we always want to get the very people that were there, in the case of the white school that you participated in, Willie McDonald was there. John Hamilton played himself as well. And so it's important that we get those stories right using the people that were there. But we want people to see the action and get a visceral sense of what happened. And uh, that one scene that uh, of the ramp ceremony, I, mean, I was never in Afghanistan. Just to be clear, I'm not claiming to have been in Afghanistan. I was not. But... Um, for for the scene of carrying the transfer cases, mm-hmm. the coffins, for lack of a better term, yeah. um, you had me and Jody Salway in yeah. the front, both Patricia's, but Jody was actually there. Yeah, and um, and the height difference is is significant. He's a tall bugger, but um, so I was grunting to do it. But uh, that that was a nice touch having two actual. Patricia veterans. Uh, now, for my American audience, uh, there's about 25% are, are listening in the States, including a fellow from Indiana who I like to say hi to. He just told me he tunes in all the time. Um, in Canada, there's only three regular force infantry units. There's only three. Two are, are English-speaking. The third is uh, French-speaking. So the two English-speaking regiments, one's in the West, which you alluded to, and that's the PPCLI. That's my regiment. Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. 
or Patricia's. In the uh, east is the RCR, the Royal Canadian Regiment. We ha- we have um, three battalions each. We got three. They got three, um, plus augmented uh, reserve units. And then the French um, unit is uh, the Royal Twenty Second Regiment, which is uh, the Van Dues. Van Dues is French for twenty two, so that's why they're called the Van Dues. Um, Van de, to say it a bit better. Um, so anyway, that's uh, just translating that for my international audience. We're in 70 different countries. Mm-hmm. So uh, only uh, Canadian veterans uh, will understand uh, a lot of what we're talking about. But so just wanted to do a quick little translation for them there. No, that's great. And, and one of the things that we hope to be able to do, because as Karen has said, there are so many stories. Um, we want to be able to tell significant stories for the Vandus and also the RCRs. Actually, we have a very good one that, again, part of the story is how Canada, how Canadians operated in Afghanistan. And uh, there were countless acts of heroism, no question. Um, But there is a case where um, the commander of the RCRs during Operation Medusa we lost a number of personnel, and he actually told us the story of during the ramp ceremony, we allow the the guys who were closest to the fallen personnel to spend time with that with the transfer cases in the aircraft after the ceremony. And so he went into, in this case, it was a... Um, a uh, Hercules to speak to those soldiers, and he said, "You know, I understand that you're probably angry, and you want to know who to blame for this. Well, you're looking at him. If you want to blame somebody." Blame me. But I'm not going to change what I'm doing. And I'm not going to dishonor your fallen brothers and give up. We're here for a reason. And this is why I make the decisions I do. And again, this showed in my world a level of leadership that the average Canadian would not be aware of. And so that's a story, I think, that needs to be told. Absolutely. Yeah, the Op Medusa story is really important to us. Um, we, uh, we just, you know, geographic proximity, COVID, we haven't had access to our CR veterans in the same way that we have Patricia veterans. But There's a uh, few around here. Yeah, we're, and we're committed to tell that story. Uh, and what, you know, one of the reasons why we're looking forward to the documentary series is it does give us a chance to really spread it out so that we can actually cover a lot of ground. I don't know that we're going to be able to tell every story in our Fallen Heroes film, but in the documentary series, we can tell it. And that's, you know, that's something we're really looking forward to having that opportunity. And, and there's so many other stories. We're only talking about two 2002 and 2006 now and then you know there's still five years of incredible stories that have to be told Uh, it's um 
I just hope we get the opportunity to do it. So the the film we're talking about now, um, the Fallen Heroes uh, movie, is it a full length? Like yes, yeah, it's it's a full length movie. Um, I would say it's more of a docudrama. Okay, in the same way that uh, Band of Brothers would be considered a docudrama, more of a movie or a television series than a documentary. But they made the point of actually having the fellows who were there tell their story, and then they went into recreations. Uh, we don't have the kind of money that Steven Spielberg, Spielberg does. I'll make a call. But, you? you know, what? Uh, you know, these are compelling stories. Uh, but, but to get back to the rationale behind this movie... You know, this is also a story about Canada because our Canadian public saw those ramp ceremonies created by Jim Butters that the entire coalition used. And in fact, the, the sergeant major who initially gave Jim a direct order not to do it, uh, when he went to Iraq, he began to create ramp ceremonies there based on what we had done in Afghanistan in 2002. Yeah, he said Canadians taught him how to remember and honor his soldiers. Wow. Yeah. So imagine that Canadians back home would see on the television nightly news, they might see a ramp ceremony or images in a newspaper or magazine. They had no idea what the origin of the ramp ceremony was, but they knew that these personnel that had fallen were being honored. Our bodies were brought back to Trenton. But both governments, both liberal and conservative, did not want the public to see those returns. And so the news media was not allowed on Trenton. And in fact, Canadians initially saw uh, these repatriations through a chain-link fence uh, about 150 yards away. And uh, they might have seen it on the nightly news, or they might have seen it on in a newspaper. But the Canadian public said, screw you. And they went out, first along the fence line at Trenton, and then down the road from Trenton to Highway 401. Eventually, it went the entire approximate 300 kilometers from Trenton all the way to Toronto and down into the heart of Toronto where the coroner's office was. And that became the Highway of Heroes. That was Canadians' way of showing their respect and appreciation for our fallen personnel, but also their families. And so we had the honor of interviewing some of the families as well that are part of that story. I mentioned uh, Andrew Eichenboom, who was killed, and we, uh, Maureen Eichenboom, is a good, is a significant part of the story. Um, Ainsley Christensen, who is the curator of the RCR Museum in Petawawa, she lost her brother, and she tells the story of finding out about her brother, his falling, and traveling down the Highway of Heroes. And so we want Canadians to understand that this story is much about them. It's about holding up a mirror 
and looking at yourself and seeing what we did for that length of time. Yeah, if we can if we can help Canadians remember that we responded in such an incredible compassionate way to each fallen soldier being returned home and if we can see ourselves and continue to see ourselves as supporters of veterans and veterans causes that would be our goal to be able to change the way that Canadians see themselves and the the um to help them understand why that's important we take them on a little tour of history in one of our acts through the First World War, through the Second World War, through our peacekeeping years, so that we can build a little context to the war in Afghanistan and why that was important. And to be able to understand the climate uh, in Canada, political climate, the, the, the fact that Canadian soldiers were not allowed at times to wear their uniforms off base for fear that they'd be spat at or, uh, you know, get into a brawl at the bar um, because there was such a level of disdain for Canadian soldiers by the Canadian public. Oh, still is in the universities. Well, and, you know, uh, for people to just really understand the root of that and why that turning point was so important when the whole country got behind the war in Afghanistan, they may or may not have supported the war itself, perhaps didn't understand it. Well, there's but a... But they got um, behind the, 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 the families of the fallen. There's a grotesque misunderstanding of the difference between supporting war and supporting the warriors. People think that... Some people think that by venerating our veterans or that we're glorifying war, they couldn't be more wrong. The people that want war, you know, that want peace the most are those of us that know what a war looks like. Um, people say, oh, the Ukraine. It's like, you don't even know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I know what's going on there because I've seen it before. The devastation that's happening in the Ukraine right now is very similar to what happened in, uh, and the crimes against the humanity and the executions and uh, straight up murder, not battle, not not, not valiant soldier versus valiant soldier. It's murderous son of a bitch uh, killing women and children, executing them, shooting them in the back of the head, throwing them in a pit. That's happening in the Ukraine right now, mm-hmm. and that's that's most war. It isn't uh, saving Private Ryan soldier versus soldier stuff. It's uh, it's the slaughter of civilians. The senseless slaughter of civilians. That's what's happening in the Ukraine. That's what happened in the former Yugoslavia. That's the truth. And there's no valor to be had by those committing these war crimes. Um, So when the veterans are shit upon by the, oh, you're just glorifying war. No, you idiot. It's the opposite. We know what war actually is. We don't want war. You're acknowledging the sacrifice made by those of us that walked in those situations that are beyond the worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. And we did it um, 
to try to save people from uh, from slaughter, to try to end the slaughter. That's what we did, yeah. and that's our role. And um, that's the misunderstanding. At the end of every interview, we give our personnel, and we're talking about Afghanistan right now. The very last question is one that I ask, and that is, this is probably going to go to Canadians because we have an exhibit that's traveling around Canada, coast to coast to coast, for the next five years, helping Canadians understand the soldier's experience, the Canadian experience in Afghanistan, why we were there in the first place, what we did while we were there, and in some cases, what is the result. We give our personnel an opportunity to have the last word and say, when the Canadian public is walking out of this exhibit, what should their takeaway be? And it's remarkable. What we hear from our soldiers is just remarkable. And so many of them are intensely proud of showing Canadian values in such a war-torn country. Whether it's the Vandus proud of, of creating schools for children or escorting, escorting the girls to schools and protecting the girls. Listen, if they get into ticks, they can fight as good as anybody else in the world. But their greatest pride came from, able to, from being able to do something positive. And so, you know, I encourage anybody who is in a town or city or village where a Mission Afghanistan exhibit is, take the time and go out. There are 450 mini-productions there. It will help them understand the Canadian, the Canadian experience in Afghanistan. So where are these? Where is it currently, Karen? The, um, so we produced it, but we're not in charge of touring it. So I'm not exactly <laughs> sure where it is at the moment. But it does have a schedule that it's, it's the... the is there a website Af- that uh, keeps track of it? Uh, we have a website that explains the exhibit and we have yet to marry it up with the, the touring schedule. So that's, we, we launched this project, uh, in December of 2021. And, um, and so we're coming full circle now to being able to kind of marry this website with the, with the touring schedule. But so far it has been in Shiloh. It has been in Edmonton. And um, and I'm not 100 percent sure and where its Calgary, next destination Calgary is. Of course, it was a, in Calgary as and, well. In Ottawa, was it opened in Ottawa? It was not yet. Not yet. Not yet. It's de- it's destined. There's two different aspects of this um, exhibit. There's a permanent, or rather, not a permanent. There's a um, a large 3D exhibit that includes art and artifacts, and then there's a pop up which can go anywhere in schools and community halls and legions. And that's the one that I think has the most potential to go coast to coast to coast in any little town. Um, so yeah, if anybody listening is interested in hosting that exhibit, I would say the, the best thing would be to jump forward and say so that you've got a place for it. And then, uh, and Veterans then Association we'll to, Food Bank would host it. Yeah, that yeah, would be fabulous. Absolutely. absolutely. That would be fabulous. Yeah, upstairs in the lounge would be perfect. 
I know that the, the folks that were in charge of the the um, establishing the touring schedule were having some difficulty during COVID getting getting commitments from venues, and so that's what, really what we need is venues to come forward that want to host yeah, it. The Veterans Association is not skittish about such things, so let's that would be it. an issue. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what is our schedule for the movie coming out? What's it What's it look like? Well, we have got most of our principal filming in the can, with the exception of maybe a few scenes. If we're lucky, we'll get them in. But mm-hmm. we've got enough principal filming now in the can that we can produce this film, which is what we've been waiting to do for literally 10 years. And uh, and so this winter is really going to be it. Um, we're hoping to premiere April 17th in Edmonton. Um, which theater? Garneau Theater. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice choice. And uh, the reason we're premiering in Edmonton, uh, we would have done it this year in April, um, but because of COVID, we could not. Um, it would have been the 20th anniversary of our first fallen soldiers in Afghanistan at Tarnak Farms. And uh, <coughs> we're exhibiting in Edmonton because that's where those soldiers came from. And then we will roll it out to various theaters and uh, um, what is it? Public Affairs wants to have a copy of it that they can send to schools and so yeah. on as well. No, there's an educational component to this, so we're going to have eight minute and fifteen minute uh, versions of this film that'll that'll be included with veterans' tools kits, so that uh, veterans can take this film out with them when they do their remembrance visits during um, Veterans Week, and so that will. That will be accessible to um, veterans all across the country. So that's one of our most important mandates is to get this out to the schools. So it'll be a feature film. It'll in in. Um, in I wonder a- if you could get it on Amazon Prime. Well, that would be fabulous. Uh, yeah, we. I mean, we are looking at venues like that. Um, nothing is said and done yet. Uh, we have been head down, tail up working on the project and so uh distribution is always a chore uh in the film business and that is something that we're definitely looking at but we have been clum you know one of our problems is that we're closely aligned with the military and the military experience and in many cases that is not considered a commercially viable subject yet for us we think it's really important to help Canadians understand. So, you know, we fight headwinds from time to time when we try and get distribution. Yeah, um, but like this for is instance, a history story. television or um, the, um, what's the other one, the documentary network, that's just not coming to me right now, but major um, broadcast networks are just, we get closed doors when we tr- when we try to promote this story, which is really frustrating. But we're hoping that once the film is made and people see that this is a moving, powerful story that needs to be told, that we'll, we'll get more buy-in. So that's, that's kind of the goal. But right off the bat, we're going to be able to tag this film along with the Mission Afghanistan touring exhibit. So no matter what, this film will go along with the exhibit as it tours for the next five years. Yeah, so that's that's pretty important. You know, one of our problems is that COVID really took the wind out of our sails. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, on the money-raising effort, as well as the production. We had a task order that was written in um, December 
2020. 2019. Well, no, it says 2020 on 2020. it. 2020, okay. All right. And so um, that task order uh, was to have the Western military assist us in our recreations. Well, with COVID, the bases were closed. There was no way we could get in. And two years later, people had rotated out. People had moved to other positions. And uh, other people were going, well, I think that order's dead now. You know, this kind of thing. So uh, we were able to resurrect it. And um, about three weeks ago, uh, we filmed at Shiloh, uh, not Shiloh, but uh, Suffield, mm-hmm. which is a remarkable experience in itself. But we're, we're now... Well, Suffield is re- perfect, uh, uh, perfect filming area. For recreating Afghanistan. It worked out extraordinarily well. Uh, but we're, we're getting buy-in now and assistance that we have not been able to get for the past two years. And so um, there are a few things yet that we will shoot, uh, probably in and around the Calgary area. Uh, we have areas that we can recreate that look like Afghanistan. So we'll continue to shoot those, but our, our projected premiere is still April. Okay. Well, I'm uh, looking forward to being there for for the premiere. I'll come yeah, up to there. I'll come up to Edmonton for it. That's for sure. You'll get the invitation for sure. And there will be a premiere in Calgary as well. It's just our first premiere will be at the Garneau Theater in Edmonton. For you to get uh, volunteers for uh, extras and whatnot. Uh, every time I share it, there's people that go, "Oh, I want to do that." Yeah. Uh, what's the best way for people to keep track of what you're doing on Facebook? Facebook, our, our Combined Forces Production Collaborative Facebook page. Combined Forces Production, production collaborative. collaborative. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Combined yeah. Forces Production Collaborative on Facebook. So follow that, folks. And uh, I'll try to have links in the show notes for the audio version of this. If you're watching this on um, one of the live streams, this will be rebroadcast on all the major podcast channels, anchor.fm. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that'll be um, produced in about an hour and a bit here. And uh, that's in in those show notes. I'll have whatever links I I, I can so that uh, you can access this as a a resource. Um, Anything that we need to cover that we haven't covered? I don't think so. But thank you so much, Mark, for the opportunity to, to come and share our story with you today. Well, the work you two do is um, so important, so important. And there are so many stories, like we alluded to MEDAC before, and there's something called sanctuary trauma, which is basically when you go to the place where you're supposed to get the help and they kick you in the gunions, um, they hurt you instead of help you. You know, that is... uh, that's a punch in, in the guts that is, is tough to recover from. And that's what everybody at MEDAC experienced. Yeah. Uh, because they, they, you know, weren't, weren't expecting a parade, although they deserved one. Um, but maybe not treat them like they're invisible. So how their own government um, and the media uh, treated all the MEDAC veterans. Um, and, and still it's an unknown story for the most part, mm-hmm. is uh, so damaging. And the work that uh, you do to bring these stories to light helps heal that so much. 
That, yeah, and you know, uh, I think we promised Colonel Calvin that we were going to continue to tell that story. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and in fact, maybe I'll share with you, I'll, I'll send you a link to uh, uh, the small production that we did called Remembering Madag. Oh, I'd love to see I think it. Yeah, that, of course. Uh, I think that's important. Uh, we interviewed a number of the guys who were there on the ground in that firefight. An interesting story. Uh, Jim Butters um, was at Madak. Uh, he, after Madak, he went down to the states to the uh, to the sergeant major's course, and um, while he was there, this no, this was not immediately after Medak. It was sometime after. While he was there, there was also a Croatian soldier who was also in the course, and they met. And uh, Jim said, well, I was here and I was there. And the guy said, well, tell me the town that you were at. And he told him the name of the town. And uh, this guy was on the other side of Medak. They were shooting at each other. And, you know, when they went out, they found bandages and blood and so on, but they had taken all their fallen away. He told Jim that, they had lost about 60 guys that night. And uh, it's pretty remarkable. The Americans wanted to actually do a film down there about this Canadian and this uh, Croatian meeting now taking the course. And, of course, the government said, uh-uh, ain't going to happen. Well, I know for a fact they lost a lot more than 60. Could be. Because I know one guy that was rocking on the C6 that probably did that all by himself. That's a possibility, yeah. So um, the official numbers were 27, which is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Because there's no, it was more like 250 uh, from the best estimates that I've heard. And four days of fighting, but um, not one dead Canadian. Some of them got wounded and scuffed up, but uh, not one dead Canadian after four days of fighting. Outmanned, outgunned. Um, no support, no no fast air, no artillery, nothing, uh, and uh, not one dead Canadian. Unbelievable uh, they, story. The Croatians believed that the Canadians were going to fold like the French had. Yeah. And uh, they did not. No, they sure didn't. And, uh, and, and, and remember that they were also protecting people. That's what they were there for. Yeah, trying to keep the, um, that village alive. Mm-hmm. You know, because what, right. what the intent of the Croatians was, was to murder every man, woman, and child. One of the things that sticks with me is um, uh, one of the folks that, uh, one of the Canadians that, um, like myself, has been on that ground, said, they even killed the dogs. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about that line, you know, I'm not even sure who said it, but they even killed the dogs. Mm-hmm. They killed everything. There's nothing left standing. Yeah. Jim Calvin told a pretty powerful story of how they were trying to get to these villages. And um, and the Croatians were holding up the road. Oh, well, we, we've you know, got to clean up some things. You know, we have to get proper orders, blah, blah, blah. And finally, Calvin went out and brought the media down. 
and said, all I'm hearing is a bunch of bullshit. These guys are holding us up from getting into those communities to save these people. But of course, when they got there, they were all slaughtered. You could see the smoke at a distance, but they couldn't get there. I know people that heard the screaming and saw people running as they were on fire. And, uh, yeah, there was no, no, no valor there at all. It was a slaughter. And then the, uh, the A company guys that had to go and clean it all up. That's right. Yeah. I was on standby for, um, two weeks for body cleanup. And, uh, I don't know who ended up going to do it. Cause you know, you want to get on that as fast as possible cause they get pretty ripe. That's right. But uh, I never ended up doing it, thank God. Um, many of my friends, though, uh, had done body cleanup on previous tours. Mm-hmm. And um, some of those stories, again, unspeakable. One of the doctors that we interviewed uh, for a mission in Afghanistan had also been there at Madak. Not at Madak, but at the cleanup. What's his name again? Yeah, I think it's two different guys, actually. No, no. He talked about... He I don't talked... think he was in Afghanistan. Because uh, it was Kelly Brett. Okay. Yeah. And he's and he he's, he's, the... he's, a, he's a surgeon here in Calgary. That's right. And he, okay. was, the, he, was, the doc- he, he was the doctor on tour at, at Madak. And he was, he was part of that cleanup. Because his wife saw the, saw the film we did. Mm-hmm. And where they were picking up bodies, the bags, body bags, and loading them all, piling them all up in a truck. And his wife said, that's my husband's ass. <laughs> but um, he wasn't in... He wasn't in Afghanistan. Those, those, that was a different set of doctors that we interviewed. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you know what? You know what? You, you do this for six and a half years, and some of the stories kind of they, together. They, they do. They do. Well, folks... Thank you again for for being here. I think we're about there, and uh, I'm I'm kind of cooked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, or thank you for being here, and thank you to everybody that's tuning in. This is um, this is certainly one that I hope uh, people share because uh, the work that you do. It's important that more people know about it. Um, it's important that people know that their stories are being told, that they're not forgotten. That's important. And it's important that more Canadians learn these stories and the, uh, all the reasons to be proud of uh, being a Canadian and, and of our military and of our heritage, because it's all of our heritage. It's not just uh, those of us that served. It's, it's the heritage of all Canadians, that's right. And we're disconnected from that heritage. And uh, that is a connection that you're helping to build. And it's so critically important, right to the psyche of the nation. It's important to tell these stories. How you treat others is how you treat yourself. And if you can't treat uh, these stories with respect, that's how you're treating yourself. You know, As Karen has said many times, um, our military are our first responders on the world stage. And uh, we should be proud of what those men and women have done through the entire history of this country. 
Um, unfortunately, we haven't always seen ourselves as being that kind of nation. But we have gone out of our way, punched above our weight, to try and provide peace to the rest of the world. And uh, we continue to do that. We have personnel in dirty places right now fighting for our freedom and the freedom of the people that are there. We need, as Canadians, to understand that. 100%. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. For veterans, first responders, and today, for all Canadians. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. With a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud.